Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello again, welcome back to the Fighting on Film podcast. This week we are joined by a very special guest, historian Robert Lyman. You may know him from his recent book, A War of Empires, that charts the story of the war in the Far East in the Second World War, and his 2004 book, Slim Master of War. So what better film for us to cover today than 1961's The Long and the Short and the Tall? Robert, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's fabulous to be with you both today. <laughs> Brilliant. So it's a Richard Todd and Richard Harris picture. And Matt, I think you were going to start off with cast this week. Absolutely. It's a real classic ensemble of British actors of the period, isn't it? As you said there, we've got Richard Todd and, uh, and Richard Harris up there, classic British character actors. And then we also have uh, Lawrence Harvey as well, who's the, the loudmouth private Bamforth. So Richard Todd's character is uh, Sergeant Mitchum, and he's leading the patrol. And he's best known for Dan Buster's Yangtze incidents, which, which we've already covered, um, and The Longest Day, of course, and numerous other films, lots of, lots of non-war films. Richard Harris uh, plays Corporal Johnston, who's a special soldier, I would say, from, from the way he speaks. And he first appeared in 1961 as squadron leader Barnsby in the, uh, the Guns of Navarone. He was in the Meet Me on the Bounty. He was uh, Major Dundee in, well, sorry, he, he was in Major Dundee, um, US Civil War film. Here is a telemark, most famously, Cromwell and, of course, The Wild Geese. The, the other principal of the ensemble piece is probably Lawrence Harvey, who plays Bamforth and he was uh, he appeared in uh, Storm Over the Nile in 1955 uh, Four Feathers adaptation uh, the the Silent Enemy in 1958 and then perhaps most famously he was William Travis in The Alamo in 1960 with, with John Wayne and then rounding out the cast we've got Ronald Fraser uh, who's in uh, Too Late the Hero another uh, Far East uh, war movie in 1970 
He was uh, Private Campbell in The Paper Tiger with, da with David Niven in 1975. He plays a, a veteran in a, in a museum. He was uh, Jock McTaggart in, uh, in The Wild Geese. And uh, there's David McCallum, who plays the, uh, the radio oper operator, uh, Private Whitaker. Uh, he debuted in Ill Met by Moonlight uh, in, in 1957. That was his first uncredited role. Um, he was also famously Eric Ashley Pitt in, in, the, in The Great Escape. Um, John Mellion uh, plays Private Smith. Uh, he was in On the Beach, a, a Cold War movie adapted from Neville Shute's book. Uh, he was also in The Longest Day as an uncredited Rear Admiral Alan Kirk. He was Flight Lieutenant Gillibrand in 633 Squadron. And probably most famously, although he was also in uh, Guns of Batazi, he's probably best known for being Wally in the, um, the Crocodile Dundee movies. Quite, quite a character in those. Uh, and then, then we have uh, John Reese, who was Private Evans. Uh, and he was in lots of TV work. He was in um, the odd 80s film Sky Bandits, which is like a, a Wild West crossover with World War One. Very, very unusual film. Yeah, that film is bizarre, it isn't really it? It really is. Um, and uh, he was also um, a German sergeant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he had bit parts later on in his career, but actually quite interested in this um he has quite a lot to do and then we have uh kenji takaki who is one of the the, the chaps that were in the original play that the, the, the film is based on he plays uh the character known as tojo in the credits of the film and he was he's an unnamed private first class of the imperial japanese army and he had lots of credits in 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 playing asian roles in lots of films he was 66 at the time of filming actually so he's quite old for a, a japanese army private i would say wouldn't you Yes, although in those days, of course, soldiers were long service soldiers, but 66, yeah, it's pretty old. Although on, in the film, you can't tell that he's, he's older than usual. Mm. But um, it didn't, he didn't look too old to be, you know, to fit the part. I thought he, thought he was a, a really, really good, uh, good actor. I agree. And, and played, it, played it really well. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, he, he was previously in uh, The Camp on Blood Island and 55 Days at Peking. And he also uh, appeared with um, Stanley Baker in uh, The Last Grenade as well. Oh, which wow. is a, a, a mercenary film, which we may cover at some point. Um, a couple of the others, uh, the other the Japanese soldiers, which, which appear at the end, have some interesting credits. You have Anthony Chin and uh, Andy Ho, and they were also in films like uh, Camp on Blood Island, uh, The Yangtze Incident, uh, a couple of Bond films between them, and uh, 55 Days at Peking, and The Planter's Wife as well. And one of the few Malaya films. Uh, yeah, yeah. Malayan emergency films. Um, and that that basically rounds out the cast, but it's very interesting. It's got a very strong cast, and um, Peter O'Toole had originally played the um, the Bamforth character in the the West End production. His his understudy for the, the West End production was was Michael Caine, but he never went on. But he did do the Scottish tour, so I think it would have been really interesting to have had either of those in the film itself. Robert Shaw plays um, Todd's character as well. Like the names they could have picked from. I mean, obviously at the time they're not massive stars at the time obviously Shaw would find fame later on in his career but the cast is just powerhouse isn't it, it, it it's one of those movies I think it it's almost a little bit not as well remembered as I think as the play perhaps the studio bound nature of it I think so takes away from that maybe yeah so I don't, I don't actually think it worked as well as as they intended and I think one of the problems with having such a stellar cast I mean if every single one of your actors is going to be you know in the top quartile of, of performers perhaps not them but later you know, that they're all well-trained actors. The, the opportunity, <clears throat> opportunity of them clashing together and, and, um, and not, not bringing out the best of the story 
is is an issue. I think actually that's what happens here. I think you know what what would have been a better thing for the producer to do was to have a couple of big names because I, I felt you know as the film went on, I really got irritated with a little bit of the overacting. You know, so the real challenge here is that each of the individuals has to express their personality. So there's a quiet type, there's a very thick type, there's a very um, barrack room lawyer type, there's Banford, there's mm. a really tough sergeant type, and there's a cocky corporal, you know, who's who's responsible for irritating everybody. I mean, and, and they they almost over overact. And, and, and by doing that, they lose one of the key facets of military efficiency, which is teamwork. So there is no teamwork from from the moment they set out on this patrol to the time they finish it. It's just a complete disaster. So you, you can get a sense of that happening. But, you know, they, they're great actors, but I just think it didn't really help the film. I think it would have helped the play. I think the play would have been a very different, um, different thing. But, you know, constrained in that particular box yeah. is very difficult. And it's very interesting reading um, reading some of the uh, the stories from the the filming I mean, people just didn't get on with each other did they yeah exactly i mean that i mean that's perfect because i'll cover the production very quickly now um but yeah there's some fantastic stories from on set so yes as we mentioned before it was based on the the hit 1959 play by willis hall and uh, the film rights were bought in the same year um, and it was turned into a feature film by Michael Balkin Productions, and he also served as the movie's producer. And it was also uh, produced by the Associated British Picture Corporation, who also helped produce The Dam Busters uh, with Richard Todd as Guy Gibson and Ice Cold and Alex. And the film was released by Warner Pathé uh, on the 17th of February 1961 in the UK. Uh, it's directed by Leslie Norman, who's perhaps best known for directing Dunkirk in 1958. And he produced The Cruel Sea in 53. Uh, his son, Barry Norman, obviously is uh, well known from the film, uh, BBC film review show. Uh, cinematography was by Erwin er Hillier. Uh, he also acted as DOP on The Dam Busters as well. There's a nice link there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, the play was adapted by Wolf Mangovitz, uh, who also wrote screenplays for The Day the Earth Caught Fire and the David Niven version of Casino Royale. And the movie was filmed entirely um, within El Elstree Studios. Uh, but it was gripped, as, as Rob was mentioning there, gripped with issues between uh, Richard Harris and, and Richard Todd because they resented each other's uh, political views. And the fact that Peter O'Toole was recast for Lawrence Harvey um, really irked uh, Richard Todd. Um, and uh, he later said in an interview, I didn't enjoy working with Lawrence Harvey. I took it for granted they would cast Peter O'Toole, who was marvellous on stage, but they said they wanted a name. Well, there we go. Yeah, yes. and uh, we have a retro review this week, and this time it's not from the Daily Mirror. Oh, gosh, I hear you cry at home listening in. <laughs> but this time it's from Variety, and it says director and scriptwriter have not been able to resist the temptation to take a great deal of Willis Hall's war play into the open air of the jungle. This is a pity. It loses the sense of pent in suspense that mark the play so effectively, and it shows up the fact that Elstree Jungle is rather phony. Oh, that's absolutely fabulous, because my fundamental criticism of the film, as I've said to you earlier, Robbie, is um, there is no drama. There is no sense of impending doom. And the, the film, and I, I wonder whether this is Norman, doesn't really understand the context of the film, because if he had got it right, it would have been a stonker. Because the Japanese, remember the Japanese, and remember this is not 
Burma. This is Malaya, January 1942. So the Japanese had been in Malaya for three weeks. And in three weeks' time, they'd be in Singapore. And Singapore would fall on the 15th of February. Willis Hall gets us absolutely right, but I don't think um, the producer understands it. So what you need to have is huge amounts of impending doom, terror. You know, the, the Japanese are charging down from the north. They're very close, if not uh, surrounding the positions now. They're a byword for brutality. All the British soldiers uh, have been um, trained to understand what the Japanese have done in China. It's not a mystery to them. They understand how the Japanese uh, treat prisoners brutally, how fierce they fight. And all the news coming out of northern Malaya for those three weeks is one of British and Commonwealth failure, retreat, disaster, uh, lots of horrible stories about massacres coming through as well. Now, that should have been the backdrop to this film. And I think yeah. that's where it, it was missed. That, that sense of drama all the way through, they try, tried to artificially create it. And for me, it didn't work. I mean, I, I've read somewhere that it worked on, on the in the play mm. um, because people knew what was happening. In a film, you know, many, many years later, you need to understand the context and, and it's not laid out for us. So I think that that's the biggest letdown for me. Agree, agree. Yeah, we only get the, the very briefest of hints of any sort of jeopardy because... McLeish, Ronald Fraser's character, talks about having a, a, a kid brother in the Highlanders. Yes, uh, yes. And they're up on the line. And there seems to be amongst all of the chaps, there's no real sense of um, impending oncoming uh, enemy attack. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, three weeks into that campaign is completely inaccurate. And it, it was a fighting retreat all the way down the peninsula. So, yeah. And the, the, re the reason why that's a problem for me, and, and I think it lets the film down, is because the film is fundamentally a morality tale. It's about how you treat uh, the enemy uh, and, and, and whether it's right or proper to take a life in cold blood. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, dynamic, it's a very interesting conversation to have. The answers are really simple. Um, the British military tradition, in fact, the Western military tradition is based firmly on developed notions of, of um, uh, military law the law of war, and it's illegal to take a life in cold blood. And that's what the, the play's trying to create that, to create a conversation around that. But it fails because there's no jeopardy at the start. Mm. If they knew that the Japanese routinely bayoneted prisoners as they did without a second thought, then that would have been a fantastic backdrop to what do we do? Do we stay? Do we protect ourselves? Do we take Tojo back with us? What do we do? Do we actually do to Tojo what they do to us? That would have been a fabulous conversation to have, but no one had it. And I think that was such a letdown. The closest we get to that is 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 the talk over the, the cigarette case. And they yes. seem more shocked that they would loot from uh, dead British soldiers than they would be about how they were treating them. Yes, um, yes. I think that is, I, I can understand that, but I mean, it's a soldier's lot. Soldiers do tend to take things off enemies whether they're prisoners or dead um, mm. that's there's a long history of that there so is. that that's that's an interesting point but they never discuss it's it's always sort of ethereal around oh well they were dead when they took that cigarette case or if it was taken from a, a british soldier or you know and it, it that seems and it's a great scene because there's lots of uh interaction and it flips on itself a number of times where Bamforth counterposes that Perhaps he bought it from somewhere and, and all this. And but that that seems great character-wise, but it, it lacks a little bit in that 
the substance of, of the context of the situation. And it would have mm. made, I agree entirely with that, it would have made a much, much better scene had they had the backdrop been this conversation around, um, had Tojo bayoneted a British soldier to yes. take the cigarette case. You know, so that jeopardy that you described just wasn't there. And I mean, it's very interesting. I was thinking, you know, sitting there, uh, having been a soldier, and if, if, if I was presented with that, I was precisely what I've just presented. There is no fear, adrenaline, uh, worry, jeopardy. And soldiers talk about these things, of course. You know, it's a, it's a natural thing to talk about. But it's, um, I mean, I think the one thing the film did get right, if we're going to, if I'm allowed to leap ahead, is, you know, sure. I'm criticising it because actually the, the it could have done so much better. Actually, as an aside, you know, it's a great film. It's a few years after it was, produced it was in the top six or seven films in britain you know, so it went down very well so it would have gone down well with veterans and all the rest of it but it could have been so much better yeah and uh, and that's where i think and, and it, you know really good films from from that era uh, military and otherwise are often remade and yet we've never really had a remake of this film and i think i no. think we we could absolutely have it and i think there are some really good films that could be made in 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 the context of today's conflicts and the conflicts of the last 20 years, you know, how do you deal with uh, prisoners or um, engaging in battle in cold blood as, as opposed to hot blood? Mm. Um, and that's, that's a real challenge for all the, the film. questions counterinsurgency brings up. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. We, we usually never spin off from the review, but that was fantastic. <laughs> so <laughs> as, as our new and newish feature, if, if you've listened to the show recently, we ask our listeners for their one word reviews. And we've got a few this week. Dominic Suave says tremendous. Uh, Gary Patterson says uh, outstanding. And Dissecting World says theatrical. And I think they all kind of sum up the mood of the film. Theatrical certainly works. Theatrical is a good one, yes. Because that's mm. one of my criticisms I, I said early that... I do feel like it is too penned in. It feels like they can't work out whether they want to film the play or whether they want to have it more as an epic. Like I felt it could have been them on the move, retreating from the Japanese and then somehow bump into Tojo and have to deal with him on the retreat. And that would have, you would have had the impending doom there of, well, look, if we don't stop, you know, we can't stop to deal with this guy because if we do, we're going to get overrun by the oncoming force. It's the, the fact it's studio bound really affects the movie for me. I'm going to I'm going to bring in this point about Jeopardy again. There is no sense of urgency in them. You know, their patrol have gone out. They're sort of hanging around. If they knew that the Japanese were coming, you know, breathing down their necks as indeed they were, they could have picked up their um, their stuff and and uh, and headed back home and had all the arguments. I think I think you're absolutely right. And mm. they didn't. And um and that's a, it's a bit of a failure for me actually. But I think they were constrained by the fact they were in a studio, you could see the same shot many, many times. And I saw the same rock about six times because <laughs> that's what uh, Norman said. Of, of He said, you know, it was very claustrophobic shooting in the in the yeah. studio at times. Sometimes that can work well with jungle based films where you get that uh, the claustrophobic feel of being uh, very, you know, confined by uh, foliage and, and trees. But in this case, it doesn't really. But if we compare it to um, other plays that have been adapted into into films we could compare it to journey's end which is another bit of a morality play in which yeah um it it takes that concept of a group of men in a room 
essentially with Journey's End of Dugout, and it and it does it very well. And yes. you get a little, especially the more the, the most recent adaptation, it gives you a little bit of exterior uh, yep. within the actual trench itself, and it does that quite well. But with with the element of uh, of them having to move into the tin mine and then move out of the tin mine, I think that breaks it out of that one room. Yes, I think that that that's very good. I think uh, an aside to that point is the fact that you know I'm not a filmmaker. I've but I've watched lots of films. You know, you 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 want to uh, as a filmmaker, I think, determine whether you're going to work hard on the characters and make them big and and let them dominate what's happening, or you focus on the conversation, the narrative. And yeah. the problem here is we've got both, and. We've got some really big characters who are uh, arguing and um, forcing their personalities on each other, and it's actually unconvincing. And this is a, another little challenge I've got with the film. And otherwise, you know, a brilliant film, brilliant concept. But you know, to anyone who's been in the military, you know, teamwork's fundamental. But also your respect for authority and your respect for the job that individuals have to do is paramount otherwise the whole patrol will fall apart that patrol fell apart you know within five minutes of leaving base pretty quick and, yeah and <laughs> and it's just not realistic for everyone to be you know for johnson to be arguing with mitch and for so todd um sergeant mitchell played by todd allowing banforth the backroom lawyer to get away with things he would have been thumped very hard at the start and said if you say another word on this yeah. patrol, I'm going to put a bayonet in you myself. And you, you couldn't do that because the function of the film was to be able to argue amongst each other. I just think there could have been a smarter way of allowing the team. It's a really, really tough gig. I accept that when you've got mm. a sergeant, a corporal, Lance Corporal, and a couple of privates, you know, all of them have to fit into that military hierarchy. But it was artificial. I mean, that that sort of those sort of relationships. Um, just don't exist, and you know, in any small team. Um, mm. And I think that I think the film really, really struggled to get over yeah. that. Maybe um, if they'd have all been privates and there was no structure. I think that's right. That would yes. work. And then, then you then you have the power of the argument, the narrative um, playing through. I, I think it was very smart not having an officer. By the way, I think this is all soldiers or other ranks rather. Um, and I think so. You, you didn't have the yes. What did exist in those days was quite a significant, l less so during the war and and as 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 um, as the decades went on, less of a significant social divide between officers and soldiers. Because um, that's I mean, sorry, because that's what yesterday's enemy does. It it shows an officer reacting to his own actions, but obviously yes. this movie doesn't. So there's um, similarities there. But I, I do agree with you. The having not having an officer really helps this film yeah it does to quickly move on to just a rough outline of the plot the the film uh, follows a british sonic deception unit in the jungles of malaya and they capture a lone japanese scout and this leads to the question of what to do with him and the morality of the situation um just in case anyone hadn't <laughs> seen it before going in we've already spoiled it it's the nature of the beast it's an interesting character piece and it's not really a war film i know they tacked on those you can call it an action sequence at the end they tack that on for the movie but i understand in the play version you don't even see the japanese army coming on so at least you get them in this one and they did that quite well actually i think the final the, fi the final action scenes were really really well done and in a, in a few short minutes they managed to actually depict the tactical superiority of the japanese in 1942 over the british i mean some of the some of the 
howling um, mistakes that the British patrol made, like, you know, there's no noise control at all, mm. lots of shouting mm. on patrol and you know, stuff that just doesn't exist, you know, in, in, in real life. Just before that scene where they, they um, with the cigarette case, Bamforth is on, on sentry duty and he comes back and no one replaces him and no one replaces him for the rest of the film and remember he's, he's out there and he shouts he shouts he shouts back to, to mitch about something and i, mm. I thought no you're a sentry <laughs> i just found it ironic because they're 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 dealing in sonic deception but yet they're all so bloody loud you know and yeah. it's ironic it's, it's, the, the irony of that is so so great yeah. um yeah it's there's some bizarre actions but i i do kind of think at the end it, it you know that they're trying to they're fighting for their lives basically but it all shows the, the troops is a little bit in net you know they, they they come out of cover really easily they don't cover themselves with fire uh which the japanese do brilliantly i mean that, mm. that, that was very well done but you know, there's all those basic tactical mistakes that a an experienced british army sergeant and corporal would never make but yes. they did and clearly mm. they're doing well they're doing it for the purpose of the film but it just they just come across as amateurish but I think it kind of works because at the start of the movie, they do say they're all volunteers. They volunteer for this unit. I, at least myself, never got the inkling that they'd had any action before. So it could just show, you know, troops totally. Other than Todd. Yeah. Other than Todd. Because Todd's, Todd's described as losing a patrol. Yes, he is. Um, which is fundamentally underpins his relationship with, uh, with Harris, who sees himself as a seasoned professional soldier, and you know his, his father was a corporal. He was he describes his father as a, as a bloody good corporal, yes, or some such. I love and that. Like, it's great. He, he has very solid opinions on what an NCO should be doing, and yet they're all wrong, Matt. I mean, that, that, I love <laughs> yes. that. I, I loved him saying, "My father was a was a bloody good corporal." You know, as though that's something really to be proud of. A corporal's a stepping stone to being a sergeant, but. Uh, but when you looked at what he did, all he did was repeat Mitch's orders or Todd's mm. orders. So whenever Mitch said, OK, we're going to be moving out, Johnson would come up and say, right, move out. You know, in, question, a par- in a parody of a corporal. Well. I mean, yeah. That was just ridiculous. It was quite ironic. I think that was actually quite well done. And you really see through the um, the weakness of um, Johnston as a, as a as a character. You know, he's very quick to please he's always sucking up to mitchell he's beating down the other guys because he thinks that's what corporals do corporals beat up the lance corporals and the lance corporals beat up the privates that's that's how you know he's been promoted to corporal and that's how he behaves again it's nonsense and that's not how things work but you know and he's the one actually well let's not um let too much out of the out of the bag uh, at this stage but it's very interesting that we're 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 getting an insight into him at an early part of the of the play and of the movie. It's it's not always the good guys who survive. Mm. Yes, yes. Not it's not the competent ones who survive. Sometimes the most incompetent are the ones left left lying there to be taken taken prisoner at the end. Yeah. So I think we on on that we should probably move into the alley tally. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. So, Rob, we um, had some emails uh, <laughs> before we recorded this week, and I was going to ask you about Sonic Deception Units, uh, and the and the um, the email you sent back to us was absolute gold. Uh, we were <laughs> we were howling it at Fof HQ. So, enlighten the uh, audience about Sonic Deception Units in in Malaya. 
Well, I just replied to the email saying it's complete bollocks. Um, it's, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that, of on course, air. I, I, of course. I, I think I think the problem is that um, what what the producer needed was a device to bring the patrol together, to give it a rationale, and to give it yeah. something to destroy at the end. Um, and yet, yeah. there's no such Pat thing McGuffin. as sonic deception. I mean, Willis Hall had clearly was in the Royal Signals. He'd served as a National Service soldier in Malaya, so he had enough knowledge of uh, how the army operates to think up this sort of device but actually it's in the realms of science fiction which is disappointing because he could have done so much else you know there were deceptive you, you, patrols weren't were sent out to gather information or to drop leaflets in villages and try and put the um the japanese off their track and all that sort of stuff there could have been a i think a much more sensible rationale for the for the um for the patrol than the sonic deception and and when you think these guys are all volunteers well i laugh at that as well because you know anyone who's on military service knows you never volunteer for anything certainly yeah. not in those days they <laughs> would have been says, doesn't he? they would have yeah. been volunteered and they didn't really know how, the only person who really knew how to use the equipment which is effectively a radio was whitaker private whitaker who was actually brilliantly played by a young david david mckellum um, and that's not realistic either. So I think the problem is when you're creating a film like this, he's throwing devices in to give it some, mm. some structure, but actually it detracts from the whole thing. It's too much. And um, it doesn't, to be honest, it doesn't work. I mean, it's, there's a nice explosion at the end, but, you know, we could have had an explosion by, you know, by some other means, a grenade setting up a rock. They could something. have been a patrol sent out to destroy a bridge or something, and then they would yeah. have had to have carried explosives, that kind of thing. I suppose sonic deception just sounds cool. Well, it probably sounded cool in the late 1950s, early 1960s, because, you know, we were preparing to go to the moon and, you know, the mm -hmm. Apollo missions were getting underway and, and, and you know, but it's, it was, it's artificial. And I, I just said, you know, my notes when I, when I watched the film last week, you know, it should have been a fighting patrol and that would have really yeah. worked well. Yeah, you, know, it would you could have actually had a fighting patrol of, ragtag bunch of individuals have been nominated from different platoons across the battalion. They didn't really know each other. They were forced to come together. And that created uncertainty because people are trying to find their place in the pecking order. You've got Corporal Johnson, who's uh, uh, Richard Harris. He's bossing his way through the thing. You know, you, you could actually play him really well as a man who's trying to use traditional military authority to get this team going and achieve the mission. And Richard Todd, you know, this Sergeant Mitchell character going out there just focused hard on uh, surviving yeah. the mission and achieving the mission and coming back and being quite ruthless about it. As an aside, of course, Richard Todd had served in the British Army in the Second World War and he had um, served in D-Day uh, in the 7th Battalion, the Light Infantry Battalion of the Parachute Regiment. So, you know, he, he was a real soldier and you could see it. It shows. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it does show. Yeah. It, you know, it's the way he carries himself. So the Harris and, and Mitchum obviously carry uh, M1928 Thompsons, which is, is is nice and correct. And they've even got the 20 round magazines. Which odd is nice that they to had see. two, though. I thought I thought that was okay. a bit odd. Right, two per two two to a platoon uh, patrol rather. It just seems well. It, that that, that, is, that is correct. That's that is correct. I mean, actually, at the time, the British Army and the Indian Army had a real paucity of automatic weapons relative mm -hmm. to the Japanese. The Japanese had. Uh, an automatic weapon in every section. In the British Army, we had uh, three or four um, Thompsons, and you're right, straight uh, magazines uh, in the platoon, most of which were in platoon headquarters. They wouldn't have found their way down yeah. to the sections, although, you know, the company's our major company command, they would have, you, you might have had one person in a section with a, a Thompson. Mm. Um, but um, 
no Bren gun. And I think that's surprising as well. There should have been a Bren gun with them, although I suppose it's understandable if they, if they didn't have them. It is It is a little bit surprising considering that they get the Japanese weapons. So, right, they have a Type 99 like machine gun. They all have the correct Arasaka rifles. They even have the um, the, the correct hand grenades, the, uh, the Type 97s. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the Japanese kit is amazing in this. And it all sounded good as well. I have to say, the, the Japanese, when they were presented tactically and in their uniforms and their kit, it, it's jolly good stuff. I mean, it really is accurate stuff. No one moves unless that light machine gun's firing. Yeah, yeah, true. perfect, perfect. Which, which is, yeah, it's very good. That that in that respect, it is. Well, those light those light machine guns in the um, in the infantry sections were the biggest shock to the British and Indians and the Australians in Malaya and then in Burma later that year because we didn't have anything like it. I mean, just as an aside, uh, you know, uh, Indian battalions in 1942 had 12 Lewis guns in the battalion. Wow. And most of them were gathered wow. together. They didn't even mm. have. Um, That's very World War One, isn't it? Oh yes, yes, yes. It was. Uh, it, it took a couple of years, a year and a half, to completely rebuild the British Army in India and the Indian Army as well, uh, to, to a stage where it could take on a pair adversary. But the Japanese were well advanced. Of course, they'd been doing this for ten years in China, and they'd had plenty of practice. They knew exactly how to how to do things. Just as an aside, um, of course, uh, the British patrol all had what many people regard as Australian slouch hats. They're not, they're traditional um, felt hats. The Indian Army had them in the First World War. Uh, all the Gurkha regiments in the Indian Army had them. A number of Indian uh, regiments like the Garwals uh, also had those felt hats that become synonymous with the war in the Far East. Uh, but I'm afraid the British didn't have them in Malaya. Interesting, when you look at the pictures of the play in 1959, uh, uh, the, the cast were all there in tin hats, which is correct. Mm. But we can yeah. forgive them that that little. Um... See, I thought it was because, and I don't know if I, mean, I was going to ask everyone this later on, but is Todd meant to be Australian? Because he's doing some sort of accent. I think he's just trying to be regional. I think he's trying not to be Richard Todd. That's what I think. Yes, is going I agree on with there. that. He's the, the, oh. the only obvious Australian is John Mellon, who yeah. is he's fabulous. I mean, he is such a stonkingly good actor. Yes, and I think he actually. He was a better actor than most others in this film. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, Crocodile Dundee, hallelujah, this is great stuff. <laughs> but he really did. He was a great actor all the way through this. And I, I actually think I'd give him the, the acting crown. He was better than all of Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Easy, doesn't it? That's that's what brings it yeah. above 
in Substakes. He underplays the the role he's got there and and, and his characterization. Yeah, well, I, I thought Todd was trying to be an Aussie at times, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> I think he was just trying to do regional regional sergeant. I think that's yes, what he it was. Trying to flatten his vowels. So it no was really that. sort of all over the shop for me, anyway. Well, he can't do the classic Todd, can he? He's not no, Guy he Gibson. He's not uh, John Kearns. He's not standing in front of the men with his hands on his hips. It's more of a true of an NCO role. It's it's a little bit different from what his best known roles are, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see the mules, actually, because I think that's a nice touch. The mules is a very good, actually. I, yeah. I, I like that. They got a lot of screen time. Yeah, they did, actually. and I, But I think they missed a trick here because one of the powerful things was in the film... Um, the instruction by Mitch to leave the mules and not to take them back. Well, you know, that's a really important point of the film where what they, the, the reality about the mules is that the men like the mules better than they like other men. You know, there's a really good human animal bond going on here with mules in Burma mm. and the Second World War, and they missed it here. So, I, you know, it was an integral part of the play that the Welshman would rather have stayed there and died, you know, um, our John Reese's Private Evans, than let his then leave his mules but it fell flat you know didn't really the horror of leaving the mules there because they had no food to, to spend for themselves uh, didn't really work it's a great idea but it didn't work yeah once they've done it they never see him again they just vanish yeah. don't they? <laughs> yeah. well it's supposed to be a, a juxtaposition to the, the the way that they're willing to kill a pow isn't it yeah of course um, yes they, they'd rather allow the the, the mules to to get away safely, mm. you know, or, you know, at least not be killed because a lot of this, it, it comes back to that morality thing where there's a lot of instances where they're unwilling to actually take life. So when McLeish, um, Frazier's character, uh, bayonets the, the Japanese scout, it's almost by accident. He turns yeah. round behind a rock and the Japanese soldier almost falls onto his bayonet to kill him. Mm. And then his, his compatriot, doesn't shoot the the other scout that runs off. So at every juncture, and, and later on when when Harris grabs um, Tojo, the the, the Japanese yeah. scout, um, no one's willing to bayonet him because McLeish had said before, hadn't he, that I won't bayonet another man who can't defend himself. Yeah. And then in the instance, he can't even do it himself. It's a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting conversation that really does lock this play in the film down to 1941 and 1942 because the dynamic in 1944 is completely different, completely different. Uh, and the dynamic is different because in 1941, the British are still running through their rules of war that you know run through their military DNA and the absolute imperative not to kill in cold blood, which is murder, is upheld. And I think it, the, the film is good in, in questioning that and questioning British behavior in, in 1942. But I have to say from the historic evidence, there is very little evidence at all of the British, Australians or Indians behaving badly to the Japanese. It was all the other way around. You don't get mm. a sense of the enormity of how the Japanese were actually disobeying natural law and the laws of war and their treatment of prisoners. And we've just passed the, the 80th anniversary of the surrender of Singapore. And some of the stories that come out of the battle for Singapore itself are really just quite traumatic and, and, and terrible in the way that yeah. the Japanese um, treated prisoners. But of course, by 1944, the, the world was very different. And it wasn't as though, and that argument about the morality of fighting would not have come up. And the reason it wouldn't have come up is because British Indians, Australians knew the Japanese wanted to die. And you would never, if there was a wounded Japanese, you'd, you'd try to kill as many as you could. If you came across a wounded Japanese who wasn't able to kill himself, 
the British didn't kill them off, they looked after them. And there are countless um, examples of wounded Japanese being looked after and actually called Tojo. That was quite interesting, actually. The, the, the standard name, both in the Australian, British and Indian armies for Japanese soldier was Tojo. And, you know, there's wonderful stories in the in the archives and the, and, and the memoirs of um, soldiers, you know, coming across Japanese wounded, looking after them, you know, like the Good Samaritan, giving them a cigarette, giving them a drink, because they knew at that stage the Japanese, all the Japanese wanted to do was die and they weren't a threat. Now, if the Japanese mm. was on the ground with a grenade or, you know, or was still able to fight, he would be dispatched without mercy because he was still a threat. And that's the point. There was... It might have been cold blood, but it was necessary because a threat remained to the to the British Australian or, or American, uh, or the Allied soldier. And mm. that was very clear to everyone. There was very little discussion. There was very little discussion at all. And all the, the copious memoirs of soldiers who fought through the war, they would save Japanese lives where they could. But where the Japanese were unwilling to um, to surrender and, and wanted to continue fighting because they wanted to go to their heavenly paradise, they were enabled to do it. So it's a 1941-42 conversation about the morality of war, not a conversation that happened in 44-45 at all. Mm. Right. Wow. Right. What did we think about um, Bamforth's interactions with Tojo and, you know, flingers on head and all this sort of thing? What What do you think about that? How do you think that represents the, the way that British infantry looked at the enemy and treated them, etc.? I thought that was really good. I mean, I actually think that um, I think that's natural, and I think that's actually a really good reflection of how soldiers behave. You know, once you sit down, you look at look at the enemy prisoner in their eyes. We're now in cold blood. So what we're doing is we're creating human relationships. That's how humans get on. And they the first thing they do is they try to find a way to communicate, and it's just an age old story. And and all the POW stories you get, um, that's that's the first step. And one of the terrors and the terrible things about some of the POW massacre stories is you. These relationships are created, and then all of a sudden, a leader or someone goes mad and starts starts killing the prisoners. So you, you, there's a there's an up and down of the emotions uh, uh, um, in terms of these human relations. I think that Benfield. I don't particularly like Lawrence Harvey as an actor. I have to say, I think he overacts. I would agree. The first half an hour I found very difficult to watch, to be honest. Um, yeah. Partly because I knew that that would never happen in a, in a on a patrol or in an infantry section. I just yeah. he, he would not be allowed to go on that much. No, he would he would have been slapped down very hard. And the, the way the way he, he he comes across with with so many sort of stereotypes within the, the whole Cockney um, vibe of a barrack room lawyer, etc. Know it all. It just it really grates, and then thankfully it kind of mellows a little bit in the in the second act. It but, does. For the first half an hour, I found him. I found his performance quite jarring and, and a little bit grating. I think it's playing him up. It's playing him up. So yes, when he has that change of heart, you're like, "Wow!" Oh, it's like the shock yes. of it, isn't it? It's- yeah, it's intentional, definitely. Yeah, but he doesn't. He probably doesn't have the nuance that O'Toole would have had with it. I don't think. No, I don't no, think I so. think that's right. He didn't. He becomes the morally reasonable person because he's created this human relationship with Tojo and recognizes him just to be another poor soldier thrown into war against his will, perhaps with a wife and family at home. And that's all very moving. He's the defender of the moral position. The way that McLeish, who is presented as a moral person, is just too weak to um, to take a stand. He sort of flip-flops. fluctuates, doesn't he? He flip-flops between one position and another. He's He doesn't have a solid position. He's very easily manipulated by Johnston and 
on the one hand and Banforth on the other. So he's, he's he's a very good actor, actually. I felt like he'd recently been promoted and he was neither one well, or the had, other. Well, he had, I think. I think he was promoted yeah. to Love School, but just he just didn't really know where he sat in the pecking order and didn't know what, what he was allowed to say or think. And, you know, that's quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge. Yeah. But um, I think it, it was very interesting that the the people with the, the moral argument, which was presented quite well, um, didn't actually survive. As Rob mentioned, I mean, we know what his fave scene is. So I think we should move on to fave scenes. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So, Rob, as our guest, um, what was your fave scene? You've alluded to it many times. <laughs> the film was a bit of a curate's egg for me. I think there are things that could have been done much, much better to make it more powerful. I think it's locked in, in time. It's, you know, you, you really, as I said earlier, you couldn't have those arguments. No one had those arguments, 1944, 45. The moral position was very clear. One of the most powerful scenes for me was right at the end where the Japanese patrol demonstrated their tactical superiority over the muddling Brits who were uh, mired in confusion and argument, both practical argument, argument about what they should be doing next, arguing about how they should be doing it, um, arguing about what they should do with Tojo and, and the mules. And it's all very confusing and just completely chaotic in the face of this really um, focused, efficient, impressive Japanese military machine. And that captures it very well. The Imperial Japanese Army in 1941-42 was actually one of the most impressive armies we'd ever had to fight. Um, but then you had the fight, the denouement, and um, and you need to watch the film, of course, but uh, most people are killed on the British side of the seven, uh, five are killed. The, the good guys and the ordinary guys are killed. So Mitch is yep. killed. Um, McLeish is shot by a sniper, as, as indeed was Mitch. And then the final um, denouement, the, the moral guy, the guy who started as a barrack room lawyer and really irritated me, Banforth, <laughs> um, actually was the one who was desperate to continue fighting because he saw the whole purpose of going on this patrol uh, and getting back to be you know, the, the most important thing in the mission. The only way you could achieve that is by fighting. And yet Johnson, who was this big bully boy, idiot corporal who's also very irritating you know, living on his stripes forcing his stripes on everyone's um uh everyone's mouths was the one who wanted to surrender and very interestingly enough um it's um it's corporal johnson so our friend uh, richard harris who surrenders with a white silk scarf taken from one of the japanese killed and it's poor old banford who keeps on firing um, destroys the uh, the sonic array equipment, which brings down a landfall and kills Benford himself and yeah. some others. So it, that that's quite a powerful part of the film, actually. It's mm. just just because you've got the right moral position doesn't mean you're going to survive. And then yeah. the little scrounger, the looter, uh, Private Whitaker, who's quite a weak character. I think they got the sequence and all that very wrong because there's no way that the three weeks of war in Malaya, he would have had access to yeah. any Japanese equipment. No. That was all really strange and artificial. They could have done a better. He could have just been, he could have been a tea leaf. You know, that's a better yeah. way of presenting Whitaker. Mm. But anyway, he survived as well. So the two really weak links in this whole, mm. in this whole um, uh, section are the ones that survive. I think that's a really powerful thing yes. uh, to, to, to leave the audience on. This isn't, this isn't, a, this isn't a, 
it's a morality tale, but it's not a hero story. It's, no, not, it's not the good guys win and get out the end. Yeah. I mean, the irony, perhaps, this isn't spoken about, of course, is that actually the two people who are going to have it the hardest are Johnson and Whitaker because they're going into an uncertain captivity of the Japanese. And I think more could have been done about that. I mean, that that's one of the failings of the film. But actually, that was my uh, my fave bit. Johnson surrendering at the end and, you know, cowering in front of the Japanese. And then the Japanese pulling Whitaker out of the grass and laughing at him and bullying him as they had done with Tojo. Links in perfectly to my favourite scene um, is where Whitaker is captured by those. I think it's I think it's the same number of men who are the, like make up the cast of the movie initially, yes. like five men or six men, and they're all rounding with their bayonets. And obviously, he's been portrayed as this weakling, and he's got the he's got Tojo's water bottle around his neck, so yeah, he's yeah. thieved. Um, and then they, you know, they're berating at berating him in Japanese. Whitaker doesn't know what they're saying. They're showing him the water bottle, obviously, like angry that he's got it. And it harkens back to a piece of dialogue for me that Bamford said to McLeish was, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, you know, I hope you don't end up with men like us if you get captured. Oh, yes. It's the arc starts again. He also says something like, I hope I hope they kill your brother, don't, doesn't he? At some That's point, quite powerful, actually, yes. Yeah, mm, And you just feel that, you know, Whitaker doesn't understand what they're saying. He's exactly like Tojo, and he's got that he's got this despondent look that Tojo had all the time. And you think, well, the arc starts again. But yeah. we know veterans would have known at the time watching the cinema. We know those Japanese soldiers are not going to give Whitaker half the um, thrift and, and and talking that <laughs> that Tojo got. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's a really powerful ending to the movie. It, it crams in all of its arc at the end i think it crams in yeah. all the way, everything it wants to say in that last five minutes but yeah and it's just a great term from mccullum he plays this sniveling little weakling yeah. really effectively and you feel sorry yes. for him because you're like oh gosh you know if it had been mcleish he's this tough scott he could have you know he would have shown the japs that i'm not scared of you sort of thing even if it was all face but you know Whitaker's just going to crumble yeah and i also felt that about johnson as well i think the minute johnson gets a bayonet put at him he'll crumble as well it's all yeah power it's all sort of deconstructing the 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 characters there but it's, it's a great little ending matt what's your favorite scene well before i, I mention mine I, I i do like yeah the, the whitaker character i think his arc's really good because mm. he goes from being the radio op the singleman he's shown as he knows what he's doing but he's he's a little bit incompetent he he warns todd that they'll you know if, if they keep putting out um signals that the japanese will be able to find them etc but he doesn't he doesn't seem to to really uh push back against that and then later on, when he hears that Japanese voice and the music, he starts to crumble a little bit there. And then finally in the mine, when he when uh, the they're called to surrender by by the Japanese over the radio, he really does crumble there, and, and, and he ends up shooting Tojo. I think that's I think he has a really uh, strong arc, and I think as as we've said, McCallum's performance is a really really good one. Mm. Um, it's not not the biggest part in the film, obviously, but I think he underpins that. That morality and and the and the the backbone of men in a situation like that, I think he, he plays that quite well because he's portrayed as the 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 newest, the youngest soldier. Uh, he talks about being at Ketterick, etc., and um, in training and, and and so forth. But uh, that whole the ending actually really brings it home to me because my granddad was with um, the Ricky Corps in in Singapore, 
he he surrendered uh, with with the rest of the garrison and it, just R- Richard Harris's is the uncertainty in his face and especially the uncertainty in Whitaker's face. Yeah, that 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 brought it home for me. Mm. But my my favorite scene um, actually is where Harris and Todd are on their little reconnoiter uh, after the chaps have gotten into the mining office of the the tin mine in the hut. Uh, they go through the mine a little bit to to see if there's another route out, which militarily makes sense. That's a you know it's a sensible thing to do. Find out um, ways of ways of leaving an area without um, going the, the way you came. Um, but there's a lot there's a lot of building of both of their characters in that scene where uh, Harris kind of ribs uh, Todd about losing his patrol and, and Todd loses his temper and and it underplay sorry it underpins Harris's uh, eagerness to please a little bit as well because. Once they get back into the hut and the situation becomes a little bit more serious, he sort of he, he acquiesces and stops riling against Mitch, and and says, "Right, oh, I'll, you know, he follows orders." Then, mm. and I think that's a really interesting. It's one of the one of the the more subtle developments of characters in the film. With Harvey, we get that first twenty minute tirade of just shouting and and mercilessly mocking everyone in the patrol, um, and his characters. The, uh, developed through that kind of irritating, um, just being abrasive with everyone, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but setting but you up to not like with, him, aren't they? That's exactly, yeah. and that's the whole point of the character and, and, and the characterization. But with with Todd and Harris's characters, it's a little bit more nuanced. So I appreciated that in in that little sequence where they they go through the jungle and probably pass that same rock four or five times, you know, and those same two trees, and they go through that little tunnel, yes. um, yeah. which is. It's it's very Doctor Who of the early sixties, isn't it? That yeah. it's it's very um, Scooby Doo with the same paper mache rocks. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I was I was impressed they had that much standing water to be honest. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was my favourite scene. Um, it, I found it quite tricky to pick to be honest. But the the cigarette case scene, which we've already talked about, was up there for me because I I liked um, McLeish's flip flopping. I liked. Yeah. The, the arguments that they were putting forward from both perspectives and the way yeah. it flip changed when he said, well, I gave him the cigarettes. Mm. Um, maybe he bought the case. Um, I, I, I like that element too, but yeah, mm. I think, I think that the, uh, the growth of the Todd Harris relationship, although the actors didn't get on, as we say, um, was, was quite good. I like that scene. Yeah, it was good. So um, that was our favorite scene. So moving on. And so, uh, when we have a guest, uh, sometimes our patrons uh, can put questions to our guest. And this week we have a couple um, from some of our patrons. So uh, Thomas McCall wants to ask uh, Robert, did the 14th Army consider or describe themselves as the Forgotten Army during the course of the war? Or is that a post-war invention? And the second question he had was, have you seen any contemporary reaction from the men of 14th Army reacting to the 1945 film Objective Burma? In both cases, yes. So um, in the, the Forgotten Army, the men of the 14th Army or the British Army in the Far East, I mean, you just need to remember, just need to step back and say, actually, fighting the Far East, we had uh, troops, regiments, battalions, regiments, formations of the British Army, as well as those of the Indian Army. They were not the same thing. Mm. Um, but in terms of the British Army, yes, from 1943, we get quite a bit of evidence that the men of the uh, British servicemen serving in the Far East regard themselves as forgotten. And it's essentially because the, um, when the newspaper, by the time the, news, the British newspapers reach India and then get to the, the border of India, uh, into Arakan or into Assam and Manipur, 
they're six or eight weeks old. And when the boys read them, there's nothing in there about their deprivations and their, their, their work and so on, which is probably a good thing because until then, it was just a story of relentless disaster. But it was one of the things that Mountbatten, and they started calling themselves the Forgotten Army then. So when Mountbatten turned up in November, November 1943, the first thing he told the men was, you're not the Forgotten Army, no one's even heard of you. Uh, but he did, uh, he did put in place some really quite significant um, communication efforts, newspapers and, and, and troops radio and all that sort of stuff to bind the troops morale together for, for really for the first time in that respect. And, and, and he was very effective. Mountbatten doesn't get a good press always from the Second World War, but actually for his time as Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia, he really did come out uh, top. So that's the 14th Army. The men regarded themselves as, as, as forgotten from as early as late 1942, early 43. Uh, different story for the Indians, of course, because they were much closer to home. Um, and there was very little um, support for them as well until um, Mountbatten turned up and started treating everyone equally, which is a really important point. Mm. Um, the second question about um, Object of Burma, yes, there, there, there were riots, uh, I understand, or close riots in cinemas across Calcutta in 1945 wow. when, um, when the film was, um, when Object of Bur um, Burma was sh um, shown, uh, which indicated uh, that uh, the Americans single handedly were defeating the Japanese in Burma. Um, I, I understand Object of Burma quite well. I, I understand in the sense that it was a film made for Americans to bring them up to speed with what their boys were doing in the Far East. And it's really important to remember that there were many more Americans fighting in Southeast Asia Command, Far East, than there were Brits. There were about mm. 100,000 Brits uh, in Southeast Asia Command, uh, but 280,000 Americans. So although the American um, combat effort, the Northern Combat Area Command, commanded by General Stilwell, which was basically building the Lido Road over the mountains down to Michinar, you know, and fighting all fighting their way down there with two Chinese armies at the same time was arguably less of a military effort than that going on in Imphal Kahima in and so on. It was equally significant. In fact, it was working directly to achieve the Allied strategic aims in the Far East, which was to support China. Yeah. So I, I don't take I don't begrudge the Americans for making that film because they were it's a very good film, actually. They were presenting um, a pretty credible story about what Americans. We enjoyed it. Yeah, we liked yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a very good. It's a very good film, and and you can't create a film that covers everything. It's not a documentary. This no. was looking at the Lido Road, mm. and I suppose you could say that it was more of a failing of the British film industry in not making a film about. Oh yes the 14th army or the Indian army or, or that area of the war at all. You, you, mm. That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the great absences uh, is uh, combat photography. There's a little bit of cinematography. There's a little bit of um, uh, combat cinematography, which is all available, increasingly available now. Um, Enkikuchi and the Imperial War Museum is digitizing it slowly and it's going, going online. It's fabulous stuff, but there was very, very little of it. And of course, mm -hmm. no one put it into a play or a film and there never has been. And there, there jolly well should be. We should have a band of brothers. Oh, I agree. They're based, or based around the 14th Army. And there's, there's quite an extraordinary number of things that you could, um, stories that you could tell. But um, so that's hopefully both are, both questions answered. Yeah. Well, we have one more fantastic. I mean, I hope we, have, we hope that answers your question, Tom. 
Um, and we have one more question from Mary Brazier and she asks, um, I've been wondering about the different tone of many films set in the Asian theater, Yesterday's Enemy, for example. They often seem to have more ambiguous tone than those on the European front. Did the experiences of veterans of that theatre have any influence on that? And does it reflect society's different views? Um, thank you, Mary. What a complex question. I, I would simply say that I think what the war in the Far East threw up in terms of a narrative or a conversation for, for everyone to, to chew on at the time was the morality tale that the films presented. And, and you don't get that in any of the European war movies. The European war movies are all lots of bangs and bluster and bayonets and heroes and all that sort of stuff. There are, there are very few, maybe except for Target for Tonight and a few others that are really seriously thinking, thinking films around uh, what, what we're trying to do in Europe uh, during, during war. And this film and the play and then the film does try to set out those moral ambiguities in a clear way. And I think that's what makes the difference. And, um, and it does set it apart from, from other films but as I said earlier, that film relates to the early stages of the fighting. By 1944-45, Mary, those conversations uh, were not being had and because they weren't necessary. And you couldn't make that film in that time in 1944 because it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have worked. Um, but um, yes, I think I think there is a very distinct difference Um Object of Burma is a different film because it's a, it is a war hero story yeah. uh, elevating the American um, effort on the Lido Road. And that's fair enough because the Americans did a fabulous job and without the Americans, Burma would never have been retaken. Um, and we've all forgotten that, but it was a very different type of film to the ones that you're describing. Yes, the... It's interesting. Sorry, Robert. I think it's interesting that the two major films we have that cover the British experience in the Far East is Yesterday's Enemy and this one. And they're yeah. both tales of morality and men yeah, war. They're both exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. it's really well, interesting. Well, so is Bridge Over the River Quiet. Of That's course. another morality type yes. story, yeah. isn't yes. it? Yes, it is. It is. Very interesting. That's I, think, exactly well, pr I wonder if it's an element of, of filmmakers not really understanding the nature of the war in the Far East. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that, if we go back to my first comments, I think that really undermines the film for me this entire concept, uh, concept. In fact, I made a note of it. They just don't. Uh, he doesn't understand Bushido. If if he understood, if um, the um, producer had understood Bushido, Norman, yeah, yes, yeah. it would have been Norman. Yeah, it would have been a very different and a much more powerful play. Because as we said right at the start, without repeating ourselves, that jeopardy and and um, and um, so on would have been really, really marked. And the background to this conversation about. It, is it right to kill in cold blood as it is in hot blood? You know, how do you, where, where do you draw the line? How do you manage prisoners and all that sort of stuff? Would have been much easier to make. Yeah. Um, you know, th that, that sort of question, for instance, never arose in the desert because, you know, famously uh, it was considered a gentleman's war and um, less so in Europe, but certainly when you were engaging the Japanese. And of course, in 1959, there can't have been any Brits who didn't understand how horrible that the um, that war had been, mm. and 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 how terrible the Imperial Japanese Army had treated not just its military prisoners of war, but the people who they subjugated in the process of um, taking over this new part of their empire. It wasn't just soldiers; it was civilians and a very very large number of. Um, 
Indians, Tamils and so on died, many more Indians died on the Burma Railway than did um, British Australia and Australians. And that would have been known in 1959 and 1960, and yet it wasn't presented sufficiently well in the film to make it a, a really powerful film. So I think this is a film that is 75 or 80% there, but it's missing some really key parts that would have made it a great film. Agreed. A lack of understanding. Yeah. So yeah. that yeah. sways into final thoughts perfectly. Um, but I think we know what Robert feels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, have you your, your final thoughts th- first? I enjoyed it for its limitations. You know, it's studio bound. Um, perhaps some of the casting get on as well as they could have done. Uh, the, the cinematography isn't bad. It's not the most... Um, uh, experimental or, or uh, skill a bit flat in, at places yes lighting yeah. is um, nice though i'll give them that the lighting it is good. the lighting is is good um and and, and for being cine- uh, for, for being studio bound it isn't too bad really when the sounds on the banks like... were great i was really impressed mm. with that final battle they got all that fabulously right yeah yeah even the pings from the bullets and the ricochets very nice. The echo in in the tin mine was good. I, I I did think at the beginning though when they were uh, doing the, the 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 sonic deception stuff that it was a little bit echoey for a studio. It's yeah, it sounded yeah, a little bit echoey. Um, they could have done with deadening a little bit there. That's just a, something I noticed. But um, I enjoyed it. I I liked the performances most of them anyway. Um, even Harvey's grew on me eventually. I, I I appreciated what he was going for and and, and how the character was supposed to develop. Um, so I did enjoy it, yeah. It's a film of two halves for me. I much prefer the second half of the, of the movie because it feels more like what I assume the play would be like. I couldn't find any filmed version of the play to compare. No, um, but, I'd look too. And yeah, I, I, there was a 1979 It's probably in an archive one, somewhere if we're looking. Somewhere, but yeah. yeah. Um, but it, 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 that felt much more like a, a theatre piece. You know, you had men performing front on. They weren't moving. It felt very like that had been blocked out like a theatre piece. Um, So I'd much prefer the second half. The first half, yeah, you're learning about the characters, but I think you could have probably done that a little bit quicker. Yeah. And maybe had a little bit more um, with Tojo because he's giving an absolute, saying everything with his face because he can't, he doesn't speak many, many lines. There's no many lines in the movie, but he's doing an, it's an absolute powerhouse performance of a scared man. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, I just thought that was absolutely fabulous. He's one, oh, yeah. of, the He's one of the best actors in the film, I think. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I Powerful. absolutely agree with that. Yeah, he and John he... Mellon, I think, take it away for me. Mm. You know, and they, mm. they, they play big parts. Well, Takiti doesn't, but he's very impressive. Mm. I, I, I also think it's, it's interesting just to see Todd and Harris bounce off one another, even though they didn't get on um, out, outside of the, the film. I still think they work well off each other as, as actors. Um, I wish more people would think of this film when they think of Richard Todd because it is a diff- completely different type of role for him. Um, you know, he's not mm. playing, he's not playing a famous person. You know, up at this yeah. point in, in Dan Bosses, he played Guy Gibson. You know, he later, he would play, uh, I think it's... Karen's. Karen's, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a different role for him, NCO type role. But as we said earlier, I just feel it's a little bit too penned in. It could have been made more film-like with them going through a jungle. As I said at the start, I think it would have added more tension to the whole film. But if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it because I think it's a, a good companion piece to Yesterday's Enemy if you enjoy that sort of movie. And if you like a war movie that doesn't have a lot of war in it, 
this is a good one because it's more about men in if war. you like a morality piece as yeah, well the yeah, war itself and it's one of the few depictions of of you know the far east yeah although it's a flawed one it is it's one of the few fantastic so i think that probably rounds us out for this week um robert we want to thank you for coming on um a consummate professional as always if you haven't it's been read, a blast really has yes. oh thank you i mean if you have if you, if you knock history books on the head you've got a career in film reviewing because you, you've done a, a stand-up <laughs> job if you haven't read war of empires <laughs> please seek it out it's a a time to force as we like to say around here catch us next week when we'll be covering another war movie for your delectation so we'll catch you next week everybody thanks for listening thanks for joining us rob thanks very much for having me bye everyone bye 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 hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.